0: morning. Would you please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. It's the fourth gospel in your New Testament. John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible there in front of you, you can find our sermon text today on page 890. And once you have found your place, would you stand with me as I read God's Word? John chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, And walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this word of promise that we see in this text. We are all sick and sinful people, and we need a rest from these things. And I pray that you would help everyone in this room and me to find our ultimate rest in Jesus Christ, who is bringing a day of rest... ...unlike anything we can ever dream. I pray that you would strengthen our faith with these words this morning... ...as we look at this encounter with Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The Gospel of John is full of personal encounters with Jesus Christ... To this point in the story, Jesus has encountered the prophet, John the Baptist, who announces that Jesus is God's anointed son. Jesus then encounters a small group of friends who, after hanging out with Jesus for a few days, can't help but think, surely this is our long-awaited king and promised Messiah. His words are too good. His deeds are too powerful, and his knowledge is too great for him to be anyone less. A bit later, Jesus encounters a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus, who believes Jesus must come from God, but he's still a bit skeptical of some of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God and how one obtains eternal life. Of course, we as readers are looking into the conversation with Nicodemus... ...and saying, it's him. He's the one that provides eternal life. Look to him, Nicodemus. Open your eyes. Jesus then encounters an adulterous woman from Samaria... ...who's a lot like us. Jesus exposes her true need for eternal life... ...and reveals himself to her to be the Messiah which then results in a spiritual awakening awakening not only in her own heart, but also in all of the townspeople's hearts back home. And then the last encounter we saw is that between Jesus and an official whose son was on the brink of death, and Jesus both heals the son and gives eternal life to the official's entire household. What all of these encounters with Jesus have in common is that more and more and more they show us who Jesus is. When we read of the disciples and Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and the official encountering Jesus, we encounter Jesus in the scriptures and have our eyes open to who he really is. Each of the encounters with Jesus that John includes in his gospel reveals to us something further of who Jesus is. Something more of what he provides, how he is working, and, how, and why we desperately need him. This shouldn't surprise us, considering how John introduced the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us he dwelt among fishermen like peter and devout israelites like nathaniel and jewish rulers like nicodemus and a lonely adulterous woman of samaria and a daddy working in high places with a sick son he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John includes so many real, historical, personal encounters with Jesus because he wants us to see the glory of the only Son from the Father. Because when we see the glory of Jesus Christ and embrace Him as the only Son from the Father, we will gain eternal life. That's the invitation I'm extending to all of you this morning to come with me into this text and see the glory of Jesus Christ once again. What is it about the glory of Jesus that John wants us to see and believe through this next encounter with Jesus? Not only an encounter with a lame man who can't heal himself, but also in an encounter, a a fairly heated encounter, with the Jews. What is it about Jesus' encounter with this man and the Jews that when we look at it, what, what is it that we gain about and learn about Jesus? At least one thing John wants us to see is that Jesus is our eternal rest from sickness, and sin, Jesus is our eternal rest from sickness and sin. Let's walk through the story together. Jesus was last seen in Galilee. And He comes up to Jerusalem to attend a feast of the Jews. And there is by the Sheep Gate a fairly popular pool of water. And a multitude of invalids, like those who are blind and lame and paralyzed, it says. A bunch of suffering people would regularly come and lay next to this pool under the covered walkways. Now the text doesn't tell us how this pool of water actually worked for them. There are some manuscript traditions that say an angel would stir up the water and the first person in the water after the stirring would be healed. But none of these traditions appear in the earliest and best manuscripts of our New Testament and that's why they're relegated to a footnote ...in your English translations or put in parentheses. So the scripture text itself doesn't tell us how this pool of water actually worked. It only tells us why the sick people used to come and lay beside it... ...which is all we really need to know. The man's words to Jesus in verse 7 already indicate that the people were hopeful that this pool would provide all the healing their bodies needed if they could only get themselves in the water fast enough. So all these folks are laying beside the pool, trusting some, super, some superstitious possibility that the pool might heal them. And Jesus comes to one man in particular who had been an invalid for 38 years, verse 5 says. 38 years. A few of you know 38 years. I'm 31. And and an even smaller number of you know what it means to suffer that long. Or perhaps you've had friends or family members who've suffered nearly that long. The point is that this man's physical problem has been with him the majority of his life. And while it may not be 38 years, some of you, some of you are in the process of counting them. Maybe you're on year one of suffering, or year five, or year ten or twenty, and your soul battles grief and frustration and discouragement because of your illness. My body's not supposed to be this way. There's hope for you in this passage. There's hope for all of us in this passage, even if you're physically healthy right now. If Jesus tarries, our bodies will fail us and we will all die. But there's hope for us all in in what's about to unfold with Jesus' encounter with the lame man. And I'll tell you now that a healthy body is only the icing on the cake of what Jesus wants to give this man ...and to all of us. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there... ...and knew that he had already been there a long time... ...take courage in that, brothers and sisters. Jesus knew that the man had been there a long time. He knows your predicament. When he saw him lying there... ...and he knew that he had already been there a long time... ...he said to him... Do you want to be healed? Now, in this story, Jesus isn't asking the man, Do you want to be healed? In order to obtain information he already doesn't know. Not only was it obvious to all why a lame man was beside the pool in Bethesda, namely to be healed, but John has given us several accounts already that have shown us that Jesus knows everything. He knows Nathaniel's thoughts in chapter 1. He knows the intentions of Nicodemus' heart in chapter 3. He knows the woman's marital failures and sexual promiscuity. In chapter 4, he sees right through the initial motives of the official... ...who wants his son to be healed at the end of chapter 4. Jesus knows everything. So Jesus isn't asking the question to gain information... ...from the man that he didn't know... ...Jesus is asking the man... ...do you want to be healed... ...as an offer... ...beyond the man's wildest dreams. This is the Son of God... ...asking him... ...do you want to be healed? The Son of God... ...who was in the beginning with God... ...and through whom all things were made... ...and without him was not anything made... ...that was made... ...in him was life... ...and the life was the light of men... Do you want to be healed, Jesus says. As the source of all life and existence, Jesus has infinite resources and power about which this man knows nothing at all. And in his great mercy, Jesus extends himself and his healing power to the man. Do you want to be healed? But the man doesn't buy it. Because he doesn't know who Jesus really is. Instead, he defaults to where we all usually do on one occasion, on one occasion or another. That is to limiting God's ability and power to possibilities only we can see or conjure up. That's our default. Limiting God's ability and power to possibilities only we can see ...or conjure up. So the man responds in verse 7... ...Sir, I have no one to put me, in the pool, put me into the pool... ...when the water is stirred up... ...and while I'm going another steps down before me. So let me tell you... ...man who I don't know... ...but it just offered me a new life... ...let me tell you how this is. Obviously my religious assumptions about this water are true... ...and therefore God is limited to work... ...only in the way that I dream up he can... Moreover, my physical conditions do not make me very speedy. My legs have been this way for 38 years, and they make me kind of slow. On top of that, the present circumstances indicate that there are a bunch of selfish people in the world jumping in the pool before me, and I can't get in. Thank you for your question, Jesus, but healing is out of the picture. What's Jesus' response? Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Just like the waters, the jars of water in Cana could not truly purify the people, chapter 2, Just like the body of water in a mother's womb could never achieve the new birth, chapter 3. Just like the well of water in Samaria could never truly satisfy the soul for eternal life, chapter 4. So also this pool of water in Jerusalem could never truly heal the body like Jesus heals. 38 years of being an invalid, not even having enough street. ...strength to scoot over to the edge of the pool... ...healed with one word from the voice of the Son of God. We are foolish, brothers and sisters... ...when we doubt the power of Jesus' word. When we live where this man is living... ...spiraling, downward... ...into despair and hopelessness... ...as we preach to ourselves... ...false religion... ...and limit God's power with present circumstances... ...and blame everybody else for our present condition. Even if God, in His sovereign... ...and wise and good plan... ...chooses not to heal us physically in this life... ...there were a lot of people beside this pool. Jesus chose this man... He didn't heal everybody. Even if God chooses not to heal us physically in this life, Jesus' word is still powerful and will heal us on the last day. Totally. We're going here next week, but look with me in chapter 5, verse 28. And Jesus tells them, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear Jesus' voice and come out in those who've done good to the resurrection of life. Blindness, bad limbs, AIDS... Cancer have nothing on the voice of the Son of God. So even if our healing today is delayed for another 38 years and longer, we are reminded here that Jesus' word is powerful and mighty to heal. His word is final and decisive, not our physical ailments whatever they may be. And not even death itself has the final say. That should be a great encouragement to those of you who fear death. That's, that's a good word to speak to those brothers and sisters nearing death. The power of Jesus' word helps us take courage when our spouse or children or closest friends are diagnosed with something unexpected. They need to know and we need to know that Jesus has the final say. But there's more to Jesus' glory than simply seeing his ability to heal us physically with his powerful word, ...Jesus is also powerful to heal us spiritually. In fact, Jesus' healing of the lame man... ...is really only a pointer to, to a healing much greater than restored physical health. Physical health is included in the deal... ...but that's not why God's Son ultimately came from heaven to earth. As the eternal Son of God with all power and might... Jesus could have spoken a word from heaven and healed our broken bodies. He didn't need to come to heal bodies. But that's not what he did. He came to earth as a man. And the reason he came to earth is that a much bigger problem loomed over the human race, namely our sin and separation from God. Sickness is present in the world because we live in a world cursed because of sin. Our sin. In order for Jesus to rid the world of sickness, he had to come and take away its sin by dying as our substitute. Healing the lame man is only a pointer to a much deeper need of the complete restoration to God. That's why John brings up the Sabbath in verse 9. And why Jesus brings up turning away from sin in verse 14. Healing a body is not the end of the story. But only a pointer to a much greater story unfolding right before our eyes in Jesus' coming. The story of God reconciling man to himself and bringing the entire universe to a restful end. No more cancer, no more tornadoes, no more sin... ...and godless striving, just restful fellowship with God. That's what I see unfolding in the next part of the story. John's not just highlighting a controversy with the Jews in verse 9... ...when he says this happened on the Sabbath. He's highlighting the colossal reversal of the effects of the fall... ...that Jesus came to accomplish by working for our eternal rest. Let's read it together. Verse 9 says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? The man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. The Jews are so focused on the man breaking their... This is not an Old Testament interpretation of the Sabbath. No mat carrying on Sunday, Saturday... The Jews are so focused on the man breaking their interpretation of Sabbath law that they totally miss what the Sabbath has always pointed to in God's saving purposes. The commandment in Exodus 20 to keep the Sabbath day holy by resting from daily labors was never an end in itself. It was always built on God's original, let's go this way in the storyline, original ...creation goal. The goal of rest. Which means... ...that it taught... ...God's covenant people... ...Israel, it taught the people... ...to long for a day... ...when the brokenness and strife... ...and hostility... ...of a present sinful world... ...would be lifted and again restored... ...to its original rest... ...the seventh day... ...of creation. Jot some of these verses down so you can go read them later. Genesis 2, Exodus 20. Genesis 2, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5:15. Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. And then Hebrews chapter three, beginning in verse seven, all the way to chapter four, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 10. The writer of Hebrews is basically taking that Genesis, Deuteronomy, all the way through Joshua, the Psalms, and into the New Testament coming with Jesus and summing them all up and telling you what Sabbath's about. And all of those texts teach that God's purposes in redemption were modeled after His purposes in creation. Just as the goal and fulfillment of the six days of creation was rest so also the goal and fulfillment of redemption in Christ... is rest. Not in the sense of inactivity. Like the Pharisees were so concerned about... what are you carrying around your mat? But in the sense of living in harmony with God... as it was in the garden. Restful, peaceful, fruitful fellowship with God... has always been the goal of redemption... because that was always God's goal... ...in creation. So, for example, the goal of the exodus redemption... ...was rest in the promised land... ...like you sung about a while ago... ...away from all their toilsome existence in Egypt. But the writer of Hebrews says that even that rest wasn't the end. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land... ...God would not have spoken of another day later on... ...which he says happens in Psalm 95... By David. All of this rest talk surrounding the Sabbath foreshadowed a day when God would deliver his people from their sins and deliver his creation from all its groanings like blindness, paralyzation, cancer, not working legs. And how would this happen? by sending His Son into the world to die for sinners, remove their curse, rise from the dead, gather a multitude from all nations, and ensure their final entrance into the peaceful presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Which Revelation says will be a day when God wipes away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. That's the story Jesus is stepping into. ...when He heals the man. When Jesus intentionally... ...heals this lame man... ...in Jerusalem... ...on the Sabbath... ...Jesus doesn't do things willy-nilly... ...He did it on purpose. I'm going to heal this man... ...on the Sabbath. And I'm going to teach him about it. When Jesus intentionally... ...heals this lame man in Jerusalem... ...on the Sabbath... ...and tells him to take up his bed... ...it's not because he's concerned... ...that someone else might trip over... ...his sleeping bag. Getting in the pool... He told him to carry his mat as a testimony to the Jews that God's Son had arrived to bring the day of rest with God anticipated in the Sabbath. Isn't it amazing? I mean, these Jews are walking by this pool all the time. They see the man laying on his mat. They see the man laying on his bed. Now he's carrying his bed. And they totally overlook the point. Why are you carrying your bed? Why is he carrying a bed to begin with? The bed was carrying him for 38 years. Telling the man to carry his bed was not a contradiction to the Sabbath, nor was it an attempt to undermine the Sabbath. It was a sign that Jesus was here to fulfill the Sabbath by restoring our fellowship with God. Whether sickness or the sin causing the sickness, Jesus came to take it all away. But the Jews totally missed the point of the miraculous healing. And so does the man. That's why, we find, that's why Jesus goes and finds the man again in verse, seven, verse 14 and says, See, you are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is not only concerned about healing our bodies, but about restoring our relationship with God. Jesus wants the man... ...to have stronger legs... ...but that's not all he wants the man to have. He wants the man to have a heart... ...that runs after God. Not after sin, but after God. He's patiently teaching this man... ...who is in great danger of missing Jesus altogether... ...for a better set of legs. Jesus doesn't have in mind a specific sin that if the man committed it again, he would have an even worse illness occur. Rather, Jesus has in mind a life of sin that should the man continue in it, instead of in a relationship with God through Christ, he would go to hell. That's what he means by sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The worse is eternal judgment. He wants the man looking through the miracle to see the glory of the only Son from the Father who has come to deliver sinners and bring them into fellowship with God. We're not told much more of the man. Only that he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. It seems that throughout the story the man is concerned with saving his own tail before the religious authorities than he is with following Jesus. Jesus. His response of reporting Jesus to the Jews is actually very different from what we'll see in chapter 9... ...when we come to Jesus healing the blind man. You actually have very, very similar accounts here. With Jesus healing the slain man and Jesus healing the blind man. You go home and read chapter 5 and chapter 9 and you watch the events that happen... ...and, and look at the response of the man born blind who defends Jesus for healing him. And look at this man. You can see this. This man, this lame man's response is very different from the blind man's response. This man sides with the Jews. The blind man who was healed says, Lord, I believe. And he falls down and worships Jesus The blind man of chapter 9 looks through the miracle and sees Jesus' glory. This man misses Jesus for the praise of men. What about you? Do you see that your only hope in life is Jesus Christ? Do you see that the only one who can bring rest to your weary soul is Jesus? Whatever sins you've dappled with, lying, theft... ...homosexuality, pornography, blasphemy, discontentment... ...unthankfulness, pride, selfishness... ...whatever brokenness you know... ...broken marriage, broken home, broken friendships... ...broken spiritual life, broken emotions... ...whatever satanic tyrants crush your spirit day in and day out... ...do you see that Jesus has come for your rescue... ...and your eternal rest... He has come to give you eternal rest from all your rebellious strivings that you might know the peace of eternal life with God. And not that you might know such rest just somewhere out there in eternity, but that you might know what rest you might know that rest today by faith in Jesus Christ. As the Holy Spirit says to everyone in this room, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as others have done. Do not go on sinning, but turn to the Lord Jesus and trust in Him while the promise of rest still stands before the judgment day. He came to bring you eternal rest from sickness and sin. He died to remove every obstacle between you and that rest, and He rose from the dead to forever guarantee you that rest. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath, But John has written these things that you might believe in Jesus and by believing you might have life in his name. If the man in our story misses who Jesus truly is he misses everything. And the same is true for us. If we miss who Jesus truly is we miss everything and go to hell. But God didn't inspire this word and John hasn't written this gospel so that we miss who Jesus truly is. These words exist to reveal Jesus to us that we might enjoy Him for who He truly is. These words exist to reveal Jesus to us that we might enjoy Him and His powerful word and enter restful fellowship with God. Already we've seen seen Jesus' glory in that His Word is powerful to heal us completely. Already we've seen Jesus' glory, in that Jesus' work is to bring us eternal rest from our sickness and sin, and now we see the glory of Jesus' person as God Himself in the flesh. You see, the situation here with the Jews is much worse than we think. It's not merely that the Jews just had some bad Bible teacher and interpretation and they just overlooked the meaning of the Sabbath. It's not merely that the Jews don't understand the Sabbath, in which they were to enjoy fellowship with God and wait for the day He would bring them final rest. It's much worse. They're blind to seeing God at all, even when He's standing right in front of them, healing people. They don't understand what the Sabbath is about, and they don't understand who Jesus is. Their own covenant Lord in the flesh. Their own God has come to commune with them in a way that their Sabbath days up to this point have never known. And they reject Him. So in response to their opposition, Jesus answers by saying... My Father is working until now, and I am working. <laughs> You've got to see the contrast here. Why are you carrying your mat? And Jesus saying, My Father in heaven is working now, and I am working. In other words, all the saving work we see Him pointing to... through the healing of a lame man... All that saving work I spoke of earlier... ...that Jesus is doing to bring our final rest with God... ...His life, death, resurrection, and second coming... ...all of that work is that of the Father himself. The one they've called Yahweh all these years. Whatever the Father does... ...chapter 5, verse 19 says... ...whatever the Father does... the son ...that the Son does likewise. And we'll develop this more next week... ...but essentially... ...Jesus is identifying Himself with God. His Father has been working until now... ...to save the world and bring a new creation... ...and with it the eternal rest... ...and whatever the Father is doing to bring that day... ...Jesus is also doing. Their works fall into the same category... ...as being God's works. That's true in creation... When the Father creates the universe, so does the Son. Read chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. When the Father says, let there be light, so does the Son. When the Father breathes life into man, so does the Son. The same is true also with redemption. Which is what I think Jesus is speaking of here. So when the Father is working to heal a man beside a pool in Jerusalem, the Son is working in the very same act. When the Father is working to fulfill the Sabbath, the Son is working simultaneously to do the same. Jesus' point is clear, and the Jews ironically get it right. They discern that Jesus was making Himself equal with God. Only it doesn't drive them to worship Him and to rejoice in Him on the Sabbath, which is what the Sabbath was about. He's equal with God. He's saying he's equal with God. It's Sabbath. They're supposed to be worshipping God on the Sabbath. They don't worship him. Instead, it says... Verse 18 says... The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. We We don't like God. We want him dead. Even when their own covenant Lord... ...tells them who he is... ...they reject him. As Paul puts it, they suppress the truth. But again... John has it written so that you and I leave suppressing the truth today and miss who Jesus truly is. God Almighty in the flesh. He's not merely a God like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses argue. The context and the entire Bible is clear. Jesus is actually God. He shares the same divine essence with God, his Father, and he has come from heaven to bring eternal rest for your soul. That means you must believe that Jesus is God if you want to experience the eternal rest we've been talking about. If you refuse to believe that Jesus is God, as Jews, Muslims, Mormons, and a host of other religions believe, you will not experience eternal rest. You will experience eternal punishment in hell and a life of endless, meaningless toil until that day comes. If you're wrestling with who Jesus really is, don't leave today without speaking to another Christian in this room. There are many in this room who would be more than happy to speak to you about it. And I'll be down here with the others at the front, and you can come talk to us about what you're wrestling with in understanding who Jesus is. And if you're a lady and you feel uncomfortable talking to a man, we'll find a sister that you can talk to about God and what He has done for you through Jesus. So don't leave today without submitting yourself to Jesus as God of the universe. If you already believe Jesus is God, then I just want to take the last few minutes and and help you to consider daily, even hourly, the assurance and comfort and encouragement you gain when you connect the the dots between Jesus being God... And him coming to give you eternal rest. Just connect these dots for just a minute with a few examples. For Jesus to be God, that means, as my children's catechism question says, my children's catechism question uh, says, what is God? Right. Says God is spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. For Jesus to be God, that means that He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. Now, if that's true about Jesus... ...then think of the endless ways you can be strengthened... ...when you realize that, that He is the one working for your Sabbath rest. For example, since Jesus is infinite... He never lacks anything I need to be truly content in this life. And so I can ask him as many times a day as I need without fearing that I'm frustrating his resources. You feeling restless? Your soul feeling toilsome? This is fuel for prayer. Here's another Jesus is, e- since Jesus is eternal. You need not fear when your illness or your suffering or your persecution brings you close to death or even causes death. Jesus is risen from the dead, never to die again. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And as long as He's alive, your rest is guaranteed. Which means forever. You don't find insurance policies like that. And it's free. By faith in Christ, we're guaranteed eternal rest in God's presence or another. Since Jesus is infinite in power, there are no competitors to the rest he provides for his people. It is eternally secure because he preserves it as the supreme king. ...of the universe. No person, no sin, no demon... ...nothing in all creation is able to separate you... ...from your fellowship with God in Christ forever. That's a really hopeful thing to ponder... ...on dark mornings of depression and gray skies. Or, since Jesus is infinite in his goodness... There will never be a day that your rest grows boring. You do not get stir-crazy in the kingdom of God. Because infinite goodness means that every day of living in harmony with God will be an ever-deepening experience of God's goodness through His rest. Meditate on that when the pain is too much. And let it move you to persevere in faith. Well, let's get a little closer to the home. Since Jesus is God... It's the last one. Since Jesus is God... and He worked for your eternal rest... even unto death on a cross... then never should we doubt... whether God really wants wants us to possess that rest... when the circumstances get difficult. Never should we doubt. Jesus, if he really cared for me, then my kids wouldn't be acting up all the time. My boss wouldn't be so difficult. My appointments with the doctors would be decreasing, not increasing. And my finances wouldn't be stretched so thin. All of our objections to God's care for us fall flat... ...when we consider that it is God himself... ...who came down from heaven to win our eternal rest... ...by suffering under eternal wrath in our place... God's love is sure. It is certain for you in the cross in every circumstance. Paul says in Romans 8 that it is in all these things... ...in the nakedness, famine, sword, death... All ...it is in all these things, not apart from them... ...but in all these things... ...that we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Jesus' word is powerful... Jesus brings our eternal rest from sickness and sin because Jesus is God himself, blessed forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your help in these last few minutes. I pray that you would be with us in the remainder of our time and grant that we might sing a new song. That those who are downcast this morning, even now, would, be, would have their feet set upon a rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. And that you would put a song of praise in their mouth as we sing of resting in you and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.